Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. Hi, it's Saturday. It's Mike. It's the Saturday Show and another Iowa State Fair Saturday. This year, all the media was there paying attention to presidential candidates. I guess the sight and sounds of Vivek Ramaswamy rapping, as I talked about earlier this week, were too much not to ignore. I went to the Iowa State Fair in 2019. I'm going to play you a segment on that. Part of what I did was to interview John Hickenlooper and Jay Inslee, and that will not be coming to you. But I'll just give you my scene setter. I was trying to do something a little bit different, a little more subtle than the first and second order type of coverage you get, first type of order. Wow, the Iowa State Fair. Real Americans voting for real candidates, the second order. What a media spectacle the Iowa State Fair is. I was trying to do the third thing, or at least weaving the first and second thing together while mentioning a lot of the confections on offer, the bacon-based deep-fried confections. So that is one of our segments from the past. And then our segment from this week was, also I was trying to do a more subtle thing than many others were. The U.S. women's national team lost. This was about two weeks ago now. And commentators, mostly from the stupid part of the right, said they lost because they were woke. Carly Lloyd and Alexi Lalas, commentators on Fox, said they lost in part because they were mentally distracted. And I tried to tease out, I don't know, maybe I was just teasing, but not the out. I tried to talk about getting at the mental aspects of the game while not falling for the go woke, go broke arguments. And my point was, and I especially concentrated on one segment that I listened to, was that You can spend all your time criticizing the bad arguments of the U.S. national women's team's critics. You can say that the only things to talk about as legitimate sources of criticism were things like the injuries and the coaching decisions. But no, I said, I think talking about the mentality of the team is legitimate. And even if that doesn't touch on the politics, maybe it does a little, but it shouldn't be a cordoned off area where we cannot say of these world-class athletes, oh no, nothing that was going on in their heads affected what was coming off their feet. Anyway, hope you enjoy these two segments. So if it were Iowa, not Russia, that turned communist in 1917, Churchill would have called the Hawkeye State a riddle wrapped in a mystery, inside an enigma, served on a stick. Everything's on a stick at the state fair and in the agricultural pavilion with the giant pumpkins and the award-winning grass. There was a line of about 100 people for an egg on a stick. It was a free egg. It was seasoned nicely, not fried, so perhaps it was the safest caloric source within a square mile. But while it was there in the Ag Pavilion, which is to really say the state fair of the state fair, with blue ribbons around me for pumpkins and beets and corn, I talked to Iowa State agronomist Rich Pope because I was wondering about something. See, I spent most of my time standing on cement or asphalt, and I said, see that grass up there on the wall, some of it winning a blue ribbon, the other a red? Could you take me through that decision on how a judge 
makes and breaks the dreams and reputations of an Iowa grass farmer. So what would make that batch of grass, and tell me if I'm using the wrong term, which is a blue ribbon winning batch, better than the second, third, or fourth? What are are we looking for? When the judge is looking at it, they'll look for uh, lesions that are on the stem or on the leaf. Uh, That would be one thing, just looking through the whole collection, how well dried it is, what its maturity is, so suitability for feed. Okay, so what we had there was Rich Pope describing, not specifically, but in generally describing a clearly articulated standard and also implying how those standards might play out in the minds of the informed individuals who are asked to render a judgment. Mm -hmm. So the analogy from that to politics and voting is just about nothing, really. Different voters could give a blue ribbon or a red ribbon or no ribbon or an impeachment notice to different kind of candidates for really whatever reasons they want. Glenda Weiss was willing to name her top four candidates. Elizabeth, Kamala, Amy. I'm kind of leaning toward a woman this time. Whereas a guy named Brady, in from Arizona, wearing a blue cap with white lettering that said, make racism wrong again, is also a certified judge in this contest. We call them voters. He seems to have an entirely different set of criteria than Glenda did. I would like a a Biden-Booker ticket. Now, we all know that voters aren't agronomists and politicians aren't grass, though they sometimes bend in the wind, you know what I'm saying? But what is going on here? If the purpose of an event like the Iowa State Fair is to inform voters and to cover the specific Iowa voters in attendance who are being informed, thus using them as a stand-in for the rest of us, we kind of ask at some point, does it work? Is there value in this exercise? Is there any usefulness to the Iowa State Fair and political spectacles like it beyond the fact that everyone gets to give a speech and those speeches can be evaluated for style and substance by the curious. Coming out of my first Iowa State Fair, I would say this. There really isn't much of a point to the exercise beyond the obvious chance to give a speech and a speech that gets a little more coverage than the usual speech. The Iowa State Fair, the wingding the day before that, the chance to press the flesh, And at the State Fair, there is an ample dose of flesh. It's not really that telling or revealing or useful, nor should it be. The extra Iowa-ness of it all, Iowa as gauntlet, State Fair goers as extra authentic divining rods of democracy, it's all hogwash. And I feel I have some standing to say that, having just watched hogs actually get washed. I'm not saying don't have a fair. I mean, first of all, obviously have a fair. It's fun. It's rides. Slip not played. You can eat terrible food. But I'm not saying don't have a fair that emphasizes the political. I'm just saying, can we hold off on mythologizing its importance? It really just amounts to a tiny pebble, or maybe better yet, a kernel in the information jar of decision-making. And this isn't because anyone is doing anything wrong. It's because the Iowa State Fair is but a snapshot whose composition is so deeply determined by facts having nothing to do with what the Iowa State Fair exemplifies, which is connecting to the common folk and standing on a soapbox and addressing the concerns of ordinary Iowans. Today, the New York Times wrote, quote, most presidential candidates use the 10-day Iowa State Fair to showcase their retail campaigning skills, which is, by the way, not just saying to use the skills, but to showcase the skills, which means to have the media observe these retail skills and comment on them and amplify them, thus turning those retail skills into wholesale narrative. It's largely all a fiction, but there were the speeches. 
On Saturday, California Senator Kamala Harris gave a speech. It went pretty well. At one point, she said this. Because obviously, dude got to go. That line struck me as new and interesting. The Iowa crowd wasn't as bowled over as I was because I have been covering the race. And when I heard that, I said, huh, I haven't heard that before from a presidential candidate. But I have been covering the race. So when Amy Klobuchar said a line that the audience really did get a kick out of, I was a little bit unimpressed. It was a line about her kickoff event in a snowstorm. And the line struck me as somewhat familiar just because she's talked about it so many times. Here she is on Good Morning America right after it happened. And what I said to him back was, I'd like to see, when he called me a snow woman, I'd like to see how his hair would fare in a blizzard. (laughs) (laughs) And then, this is what she said at the State Fair. And he called me snow woman. I thought that was actually pretty good. So I tweeted back, Donald Trump, the science is on my side, and I'd like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. As she launched into the anecdote, knowing where it was going, I made sure to turn and look at the audience, not the candidate on the stage. And let me tell you, people loved it. Older white Iowans, which is to say most Iowans, laughed and mouthed to each other. That's true. That's so true. After each candidate speaks, you mostly find that members of the crowd say, great job, and I just want someone who could beat Trump. But Lisa Fox, 63, of Minnesota, not Iowa, did say that Senator Harris did a fine job, but she is not sold. Uh, She's got issues with the prosecution record. She she wasn't completely 100% accurate with that. Her health care, she has some real issues with that, and she's not explaining it 100% correctly like she should. Uh, To me, she's still kind of at that bottom. I know everybody likes her, uh, but they need to really take a good look at her and because I don't need another Trump that's going to come out here and lie to me and tell me all these things that she's going to do and then get into office. And if you're lying to me now, you're going to lie to me then. That was harsher than most reviews. The general rule is that the people who self-select to force their way into a crowd in the area where the speeches are given, are there to like the candidates. I could have played half a dozen clips praising any of the candidates, from Tim Ryan to Tom Steyer, who is actually doing better in the cast your vote with a colonel poll than Julian Castro or Beto O'Rourke or Kirsten Gillibrand. The importance of Iowa is exactly the amount of voters who get exposed to a bit of information divided by all the other information they've been exposed to. It's precisely the calculation of really any marketing campaign. Message exposure. The state fair gets covered because it's important, and the state fair is important because it's covered. There's no special Iowa State Fair multiplier. If you do well there, it matters more than doing anywhere else, except for the fact that maybe more people are watching. You hear a lot of stories about how well a candidate might have done with voters at the state fair, but the voters that these reports are referring to are those very voters, like I say, who self-select, who crowd around the soapbox stage to seek out the Democratic message. But there are tens of thousands of voters, many tens of thousands of voters each day who will never hear word one from a candidate. There are thousands of people who spend all their day in the swine shed or over in the fun forest or in the varied industries building, which is a smart move. It is good air conditioning. They're not necessarily going to caucus in Iowa, but they might. And they're not going to necessarily vote in the general election, but they probably will. As a press gaggle trailed Kirsten Gillibrand, 
There was a guy who was online to buy, I think it was the ultimate baking crisp ice cream. And he turned to me and he asked me, who is that? And I told him, oh, Senator, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. And he said, I have no idea who that is. But then he told me that's okay because he's not interested in most of these Democratic candidates. Sure. They're always trying to give everything away, take it from the people that earn it shit like that and they don't realize the country got the way it is because of capitalism and people like I've never worked for a poor man yet. That guy, Mike Wilshire of Council Bluffs, told me where he was leaning. On the social side when you got the four and all that stuff, I ain't into all that. Yeah, the squad you mean? Yeah, the yeah, squad. Yeah. And some of the presidential candidates like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, you don't like that? No way. No so it would way. need to be a moderate Democrat if yeah, there's such a thing? Yeah. And do you think Biden's such a thing? Well, He's a little more uh, moderate than the other guys. But if it was between him and Trump, who would you vote for? Uh, probably have to go with Trump. Wilshire did say that if Trump acted crazy during the campaign and Biden didn't, that he'd vote for Biden. But then we both decided, well, of course, Trump's going to act crazy. So I really don't know how to score his assessment. Except that it should be scored, should be taken into account. He, who is in no way involved in the political process consciously, is as much a voter as all these people with their top six choices. And unlike award-winning Sweet Clover, there is no empirically right answer as to who to vote for. Scanning candidates for imperfections or punishing for lack of vitality gives lots of good answers regarding grass, but fewer when it comes to the candidates. And also, unlike the grass, corn, pumpkins, and swine, the ribbons they give out to candidates in Iowa are pretty much worthless. And now the spiel. Spain has qualified as a finalist in the Women's World Cup. Their opponent will either be Australia or England, but not the United States. We knew it wouldn't be the United States for over a week now since Megan Rapino and three of her teammates failed to convert their penalty kicks. And U.S. goalkeeper Alyssa Nair, who had saved a Swedish penalty and converted one of her own, came up empty by inches. Harting off Nair. Did it go in? Sweden wins. Now, why did Megan Rapino miss? It was because she uses the term unhoused instead of homeless. And why did the stalwart American keeper seem to save the winning Swedish kick only to have replay reveal that it went in? It was no doubt because she uses the word Latinx. Actually, I might be taking advantage of your unfamiliarity with soccer. Those explanations centering on social justice stances of the members of the U.S. women's national team, they turn out not to be good explanations for athletic failure. But Donald Trump didn't care. He essentially made the argument, as did conservative commentators, including many a self-styled patriot who declared they were rooting against their national team because Megan Rapinoe kneels during the national anthem, or because some members of their team dye their hair and openly support LGBTQ rights. Okay, so giant idiots offering giant dollops of numbskull duggery should not be a headline, but it became one since we are in a culture war and we enjoy being aggrieved by terrible opinions and also maybe a little bit to salve the wounds of the former dominant force in women's soccer not being good enough this go-round. I came across an episode of On the Media, a show that I worked for for many years, 
And being interviewed was Vox correspondent Alex Abad Santos, who, quote, explains what society obsesses over from Marvel and movies to fitness to skincare to gay stuff, according to his Twitter bio, X, his X bio. He and guest host Michael Lowinger took the stupid musings of Donald Trump and the you miss the kick because you like land acknowledgements crowd as a referendum on the very idea promulgated by many on the right that if you go woke, you go broke. They also lumped into this sentiment the former U.S. soccer star and current Fox Sports studio host Alexi Lalas. Here's Abad Santos characterizing Lalas's response. He had posted on X, which is formerly known as Twitter, the U.S. women's national team is polarizing. Politics, causes, stances, and behavior have made this team unlikable to a portion of America. The team has built its brand and derived its power from being the best and winning. If that goes away, they risk becoming irrelevant. And then his critics quickly pointed out, like, this man has never, ever been in any danger of winning a World Cup. Under his own terms, you could argue that, like, well, the men's national team is irrelevant since it's never won. The general message is, these unlikable women hate America. It's good that they lost, even though they represent America. Other members of the media heap scorn on Lawless as well. Here's CNN's Brianna Keeler setting her sights on him. Uh, the former U.S. men's national team player turned commentator Alexi Lawless tweeted, don't kill the messenger. This team is polarizing. Politics, causes, stances, and behavior have made this team unlikable to a portion of America. I mean, we should note uh, that his record, if you put it up against, say, uh, Megan Rapinoe's, it pales quite in comparison. The graphic shown there compared Rapinoe's nine goals and seven assists in World Cups to Lawless's zero. Lawless was a defender, but here's the key. Megan Rapinoe is a much better player than Lawless ever was. But that key doesn't unlock all doors because Alexi Lawless, while not as good a player, is an astute commentator who has been talking about the U.S. women's team's comportment all tournament long. And agreeing with him has been Carly Lloyd, former U.S. women's star, who is every bit the player Rapino is. But in any case, the idea that a former player who's now an expert has no right to comment on current players who surpassed his achievement, it's among the dumbest tropes in sports media misdirection. Also is misrepresenting Alexi Lalas' stance. Here's about Santos. Alexi Lawless, whose job it is to be interested in explaining to us, like, why our offense looks so bad, was not interested in that. But Alexi Lawless spoke at length for hours and hours on air and in his podcast, exactly expressing his interest or anguish at the United States' lack of offense and dynamism and togetherness. After the U.S.'s very disappointing nil-nil draw against Portugal... Here's Alexei Lalas speaking about the team that he wished could just show up going forward. This is one that is dynamic. This is one that scores goals. But again, this is one that we have yet to see. And here's Lalas on the eve of the game against Sweden, exhibiting a desperation that the players themselves failed to evince. Will the team, he asks, exhibit the excellence that had eluded them thus far? And all of a sudden, this team that now is dynamic and attacks and scores and, uh, you know, is uh, more proactive in the way that they play suddenly shows up. They did not. And for Lawless, the team's politics, which one gets the sense he does not share, are beside the point. He and Carly Lloyd had been calling the team out for showboating, dancing, profiling, bragging, singing, carrying on. But while doing that, not getting the job done 
not putting the ball in the back of the net. And yeah, it's a classic old guard chastises the youngins for playing with swagger, but it's also a classic of a team has to be able to back up its image with on-field substance. And that's what Lawless was getting at in his tweet, which he actually laid out in less ambiguous detail on his podcast. This U.S. women's national team has built their brand and their identity around being the best and winning. And yet, and we've talked about this before, I think there are a lot of people out there and a lot of Americans that are rubbed the wrong way from this team. And you know, for any number of reasons, and a lot of reasons that have sometimes nothing to do with soccer. If this team bombs out against Sweden, it's not just about losing a game. It's not just about going out of the World Cup. The big risk is that they lose their relevance. The big risk is that they become irrelevant. Because if they don't have that fuel that is winning and that is being the best, that platform and that power and that voice and you know, that megaphone that they have, that goes away very, very quickly. I mean, he's right. He's essentially saying whatever I or you think about the politics won't matter if they win. What he's saying is should this team win, they'll be free to engage in whatever social justice politics they want to engage in. And now that they didn't win, well, I guess we'll see how the endorsement opportunities and media attention afforded this iteration of the women's national team compares with the last two, the last two which won the World Cups. Lawless and Carly Lloyd were not making a go-woke, go-broke point. Theirs was more something like amass distractions and you will accrue detractors. And also amass distractions and it could hurt your play. True, some of those distractions were that the team's highest profile player aggressively criticized Donald Trump. And some were what everyone who paid attention to the team saw, a collection of athletes who acted like they were a bit more dominant than the record showed. Dancing, singing, signing autographs after a 0-0 draw that barely inched them into the knockout round, which would in fact prove prophetic. They led with swagger as their offense stagnated. This was not a group of players who seemed bothered by how bad they were playing. And to see that and notice it and note it isn't really about ideology or doesn't have to be. It's more about the idea of mentally committing to the important and sometimes less fun parts of being the best in the world. So the criticism of the team as woke, it is largely idiotic, but criticizing their mindset and comportment as inherently Trumpist That is also reductive. At one point, Abad Santos listed the legitimate critiques of this team. If any of those players had actually like clinched it, we probably would have won. But if you ask soccer experts like what was happening, the U.S. has had a lot of troubles in recent years because they're basically in a transition phase of having old players and having new players and veterans and mixing, there was nothing going right for the U.S. at the beginning of this World Cup. Not to mention all of the injuries. Yeah, so many injuries, a roster that was depleted, a coach that people now are saying was in over his head and wasn't making the best decisions. All of these are valid criticisms of the U.S. team, right? 
Well, to address the obvious, if they would have clinched it, yeah, they would have clinched it. But notice how the mental approach among the players is not listed among the valid. Notice how talking about the overall attitudinal disposition of the players, including Rapino, who laughed, she said ruefully, after her missed PK was elided. I don't even know that the big problem was mental. Whenever a team underperforms, their mentality is always called into question. But sometimes that is an apt critique, is it not? Not treated as such in this case. I do think that actual valid critiques, like Lollis's, were folded into a political context undeservedly, often from analysts who might not have the most in-depth knowledge of sports. To Colin Kaepernick, to LeBron James. If you're dunking, you should know the game. There is a final point to make about the backlash to the really dumb critiques of the women's failure serving as a shield to better critiques. It does no favors to these athletes, their competitors, or future generations to take off the table any blame beyond it's the fault of injuries, coaching, or the blending of generations, which always happens with national teams. There are times when champions, or once heroic champions, reveal themselves to be lacking in areas within their control, the physical, the strategic, and even the mental. The women of this U.S. women's national team can put the blame on circumstance to a large degree, political leanings, I'd say, to basically no degree, but on their own agency and mental approach to some degree. Being honest about that has nothing to do with going woke or going broke, but is the only way for the fortunes of the national team and their fans to prosper. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. We'll talk to you Monday. I hope there wasn't too much noise in the background.